You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 11th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, South Africa takes Israel to the International Court of Justice, claiming it's committing genocide. Our opposition to the ongoing slaughter of the people of Gaza has driven us as a country to approach the International Court of Justice. We'll assess the possibility of the ICJ forcing a halt to Israel's campaign in Gaza. Also ahead, we look ahead to the elections in Taiwan, which could push the island further towards or away from Beijing and has far-reaching consequences for the region and indeed the rest of the world. We'll ask what happened in Poland's presidential palace on Tuesday night as police arrest the former interior minister and deputy interior minister. We'll see how Paris is getting on in its Olympic preparations plus the papers, and we head to Florence for pity warmo menswear. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, has dropped out of the US presidential race. Ecuador's president says his country is at war with gangs who are holding more than 130 prison guards hostage. And Finland will extend the closure of its border with Russia, having closed it late last year to stop the growing number of asylum seekers from entering the country. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, today the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, in The Hague, will begin to hear arguments that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians in its military military operations in Gaza. South Africa brought the case to the court, with the Israelis rejecting the claims as baseless. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined now by Dr Talita Diaz, who's Research Fellow at the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict. A very good morning to you, Talita. Good morning, Emma. So just explain the nature of these accusations. So the the accusations that uh, South Africa is bringing against Israel are um, sort of like multifaceted. So um, uh, on the one hand, South Africa is accusing Israel of committing genocide through its officials, but also of failing to punish and prevent uh, these crimes uh, by senior officials. And on the other hand, it's also accusing Israel through its officials of committing the separate crime of direct and public incitement to commit genocide through hateful and other inflammatory speeches, as well as for failing to prevent and punish these genocidal statements. So that's, that's uh, in, in a nutshell, the accusations. So, um, we've heard from the South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, a, a little earlier on. He's, he's explained why South Africa is doing this. Our opposition to the ongoing slaughter of the people of Gaza has driven us as a country to approach the International Court of Justice. As a people who once tasted the bitter effect of dispossession, discrimination, removals, racism and state-sponsored violence, 
we are clear that we will stand on the right side of history. So that's the South African president, Ramaphosa, that taking a very principled stance on this. But Salita, are there any other reasons why South Africa is doing this? Yeah, sure. So this is the political reason for submitting this application, right? Uh, uh, South Africa is very critical of Israel's operations in Gaza, and it has already suspended diplomatic relations, and it has also referred the situation to the International Criminal Court. So this is another attempt to hold uh, Israel accountable, as we heard from the speech uh, earlier. But from a legal perspective, it is important to ask ourselves why the ICJ, why the International Court of Justice, why choosing genocide and why is South Africa of any of, you know, all places, uh, why not, for example, Palestine is, is making this application. So why the ICJ? The ICJ is the closest that we have in international law to a world court because we have a decentralized uh, judicial system in international law. And the ICJ uh, is special because it can hear potentially any dispute involving any question of international law between uh, any UN member state. Uh, so that's one thing. Why the ICJ? Now, why the Genocide Convention? Uh, and this is connected to how the ICJ operates. While the ICJ's jurisdiction is potentially very broad, it still requires the specific consent of the states involved in a dispute to be able to hear a case. And this can happen. This this can happen through a specific treaty, by a specific agreement. It can happen also by a clause in a treaty. And that's exactly the case of the Genocide Convention. So the Genocide Convention in Article 9 uh, basically gives the ICJ jurisdiction to hear disputes under the, the convention. And so this is why South Africa has gone strategically for legal reasons for the Genocide Convention, as opposed to, for example, the Geneva Conventions on the violations of the laws of war. So it's to bring, it, allows the, 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 it allows South Africa to bring the situation to the ICJ. Now, why South Africa? Uh, we heard the historical reasons, the political historical reasons that have been presented. But from a legal perspective, even though South Africa is not particularly affected by the allegations of genocide it's making against Israel, the prohibition of genocide is a special type of obligation. It's a collective obligation uh, to which all states are, are uh, have the right to uphold. So it's a collective right. And so because this is because genocide is so serious that it affects mankind, it affects humanity as a whole. And on the same basis, the Gambia brought a case against Myanmar again, uh, involving the Rohingya uh, um, about genocide to the ICJ. One question that one does, you know, that, that does need asking is why has Israel uh, chosen to answer these allegations? It, it could have it had it so decided, just not turned up. Yeah, absolutely. And that happened, for example, in many other cases in the past involving Israel. Uh, and I think it, we can only speculate the political reasons behind, you know, Israel's choice. Uh, uh, we know that the Israeli government has stated publicly that they will appear before the court to to basically clear their reputation. So there's a reputational reason to it. 
because, of course, an ICJ case can have an, a reputational impact on any state. Uh, and aside from this, I think Israel might want to position itself as a law-abiding nation. So it has said, several officials have said in many statements that it is trying to comply with international law and in particular the rules of armed conflict. Uh, so that, that might be the reason. And also Israel might have wanted to take advantage of its right to appoint a judge uh, at the ICJ, which is a right of any state that brings a case to the ICJ, uh, which doesn't have already a, a, a judge on the bench. The, the, regardless of the, uh, the the legal procedure, the the purpose that South Africa has set out of this of bringing this to the ICJ is to try to stop the war in Gaza. Will it? Well, that's a uh, that's a very good question. Um, uh, Directly, no. Uh, and the, the, the simple reason is because the International Court of Justice does not have a police force. It doesn't have enforcement powers. So even though a decision, a judgment by the ICJ uh, is technically binding on states, there is no police force or there's no military uh, to enforce it. And that's the nature of international law. It lacks enforcement powers. It depends on the cooperation of states. And in this case, Israel and its uh, and other states that are supporting Israel to 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 um, to uphold this judgment. Uh, the Security Council could also, uh, if Israel does not comply with any judgment, it could uh, decide to adopt measures to enforce the judgment. But again, as we know, the Security Council is blocked at the moment by the veto of the P of some of the P5. So it's very unlikely that this judgment will have an immediate impact. However, beyond these more sort of like direct impacts, uh, the, the, the judgment, a, a judgment, even a provisional judgment, which will be the case uh, more imminently, uh, the, the power of this judgment is a little bit more soft. It, it can basically influence public opinion. It can cause reputational harm to the, to the state officials involved. It can also help vindicate the rights of victims. And also it can be a basis on which other states can adopt sanctions against uh, Israel if the court so if the court decides that Israel is responsible. So that's the impact of this case. Dr. Talita Diaz, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Fifteen ten in Taipei, seven ten a.m. here in London. Now, 2024 has been widely billed as the world's great election year, with 40% of the planet casting its ballot at some stage. One of the first polls to happen also happens to be one of the most significant. This weekend, Taiwan chooses its president. The island's two biggest parties are respectively calling it a choice between democracy and autocracy, and the future relationship with China is at the centre of every campaign, with nearly half of the population saying they're worried about a war with the mainland in the next five years. Well, I'm joined from Taipei by the journalist William Yang. A very good afternoon to you, William. Thank you for having me. So we have two parties, two main parties here, don't we? We have the ruling pro-independence Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, facing off the Chinese nationalist Kuomintang, the KMT. Both are saying that this is a fight for Taiwan's identity and it is as simple as war versus peace. Yes, exactly. Even though this is a uh, officially a three-way race with another uh, smaller political party that has also put forward their own candidates, but uh, it 
essentially is a competition between the two two main traditional parties. That again, the question of how Taiwan is going to handle its relationship with China going forward for the next four years is at the center of this election, and it's basically going to decide the path that Taiwan will. Take for the next four years after May 2024, when the next president is going to be sworn in, and、uh, for the ruling party, they're continuing down the path of deepening ties with、uh, like-minded democracies like the United States, while at the same time highlighting all different kinds of threats and also the interference attempts by China ahead of the election、uh, for the last few weeks, whereas the More China-friendly Kuomintang, the main opposition party, is trying to return to power for the first time in the、uh, in eight years, and they have been doubling down on the fact that the current ruling party has been responsible for heightening the threat of war、uh, between Taiwan and China for the last eight years, and they vow to、uh, resume dialogue and exchange between Taipei and Beijing, but at the same time ensuring that Taiwan continues to maintain its capability to. Defend itself when necessary. It's treading quite a delicate line, there, isn't it? Because I think we've just had break in, a, in the last couple of hours that the presidential candidate for Kuomintang、um, has excluded the possibility of talks with China on unification if he is elected. It it does make you wonder which way people are going to vote here because they are very very stark choices, aren't they? They're sort of like the those. The, the group of the DPP who, as you say, are allying themselves with 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 the West, and yet you have the Kuomintang there saying we are,、uh, you know, we're Chinese nationalists, but at the same time we're not going to talk to Beijing about Taiwan being brought back into China. Right, exactly. So I think、uh, the question more is about、uh, which of the vision is more. Aligned with the mainstream Taiwanese opinion, which in fact I think is a、uh, strong along the line that、uh, most the majority of the Taiwanese people, while wanting Taiwan to maintain democracy, at the same time also wants the status between Taiwan and China to remain the same. Which means that Taiwan should not announce. Official independence, which likely is going to not only trigger a very big military reaction from Beijing, but also probably losing the support from Washington. And all the political presidential candidates understand this fine line, and that is why the KMT candidate today、uh, referenced and reiterated that he will not even consider a talk about the possibility of a unification with Beijing、uh, when he was being asked by other foreign media. Regarding mainly about、uh, the question of whether he is thinking about considering meeting Xi Jinping at some point if he were to be elected, but at the same time, I think、uh, it's important to remember that、uh, the Taiwanese people basically are very used to this. Un- Ongoing and constant threat、uh, from China, and also at the same time the vague、uh, international status that Taiwan possesses, and so I felt like. Uh, Taiwanese people at the same time are also not very、uh, acceptive or receptive towards big changes in their lives, and so that is why、uh, all the political candidates are actually trying to position themselves within this very,、uh, I think,、uh, tight space where. There's actually not much、uh, maneuver for them to do, but they're still trying to position themselves and differentiate themselves from the other candidates. And and yet, you know, this tiny tight space is really, really close run race. 
determines not just the way that Taiwan goes for the next five years, but the way that Taiwan is placed globally and the way the rest of the world reacts. Right, exactly. Uh, I think one of the most recent uh, reports coming from Bloomberg basically estimated that a war between Taiwan and China could cost the global economy to lose $10 billion. And that is, I think, a very striking amount of damage that is beyond any of the ongoing war that we are already seeing in the world, in Ukraine, but also in the Middle East. And I think that also just highlights how much effort has already been put into the assurances of the status quo being maintained across the Taiwan Strait. And at the same time, uh, the Taiwan Strait itself remains an international water that is uh, navigated, navigatable for all the international uh, countries because uh, it's a very important international trade route for most of the countries, not only countries in Indo-Pacific, but also other countries around the world. I mean, a lot of the European countries and also the U- U.S. itself uh, use the Taiwan Strait as a very important route for all different kinds of uh, naval uh, navigation. And so I felt like uh, we are seeing all like the outside world paying very, very close attention to this election. We are having a record-breaking number of journalists coming from all around the world coming to report on this uh, election rather than hiring some freelancers here on the ground. So I think that is just shows the importance and also the nervousness that the whole international community is waiting about the result coming out on Saturday here in Taipei. And you talk about journalists going out there, not just that. We've uh, we've seen the last few hours that Washington has said that by Joe Biden will send a high-level delegation um, to Taipei on Saturday, well, after the elections on Saturday. I mean, th- this is a move that is obviously a, a signal to to. To the, citi- to the citizens of Taiwan to say, uh, do not vote for closer ties with, with Beijing. Um, but that will clearly strain the relationship even further between the US and China because Beijing will accuse Washington of meddling in, in a Taiwanese election. Right, exactly. I feel like uh, the timing and also the members of that delegation is actually very carefully chosen. And I felt like this is also Washington calculating their own stance on this particular period in Taiwan, because for the last years, we've seen breakthrough development and deepening of the ties between Taipei and Washington. Uh, We have seen historic visits by the former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and then another meeting between Taiwan President and the former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. It all happened within a year. And then so I think this is going to be the first important visit by Washington sending an official delegation since I think the Pelosi visit. And Beijing will be carefully watching that and also looking at what kind of message the Washington delegation is going to send to Taipei, but at the same time, what sort of interaction is going to take place. Uh, We also know that just uh, yesterday, the Taiwan representative in the U.S. met the current U.S. House Speaker. So I think Washington is continuing to send the message to Taiwan that it remains a very strong ally and also it remains uh, the support for Taiwan is unwavering. But at the same time, it is keeping the warming ties between Beijing and Washington into consideration and making sure that any sort of exchange and interaction is not going to, uh, I think, push that 
very hard-won effort and progress that we've seen over the last few months back to where it was uh, when the basically the spy balloon flew over the US uh, in last March. Finally, William, we've talked for the last few minutes about the relationship with China dominating the Taiwanese elections this weekend, but there are key domestic issues here, aren't there? There's many people under 40 feeling that the, the ruling party, the DPP, have let them down, that wages haven't increased. I mean, how much are the the sort of like the nuts and bolts of everyday life in Taiwan actually determining the outcome of this election? So this is a very interesting question. Even though the at the end of the day, the cross-strait relations will be the uh, fault line question that is going to decide where most of the uh, voters are going to lean towards. But the key issue of these domestic issues like livelihood issues like the low wages and how unaffordable housing prices are going to determine the turnout of young voters. We know that four years ago during the last presidential election, the super high turnout among the young voters uh, make sure that the ruling Democratic Progressive Party was able to win re-election four years ago and turn the whole tide around throughout the entire campaign. But this time around, uh, a lot of the young voters either are deciding that they are going to vote for the third party because they feel like the traditional two parties are both letting them down and not really serious about making sure that people's livelihood is being prioritized over the cross-strait relations. But at the same time, other young voters are telling me that basically they cannot imagine themselves voting for any of the candidates that are on the ballots because they felt like this time around all three candidates on the ballots do not possess the real quality that a Taiwan leader needs, especially at this moment when the external environment is becoming so hostile. William Yang, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come? Recognise that? Well, you will do very soon because it's the official theme music for this year's Olympics in Paris. You'll be hearing a lot more of it. We'll have an update on how the preparations for the Games are going. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, Contact us at UBS.com. here in London. Let's continue with today's newspapers. Joining me down the line is Naveena Koto, multimedia journalist based in Nairobi and Kenny. Good morning, Naveena. Good morning. Uh, Tell us what's happening in the papers where you are, please. I mean, one of the biggest stories in the region is really this um, decision by Ethiopia and Somaliland to sign a deal that would give Ethiopia access to the sea and access to a very um, important port. Ethiopia is landlocked. It's one of the biggest countries in the world that is landlocked. And um, the head of the Ethiopian National Defense Forces has visited Somaliland to basically push this deal. But um, there has been a lot of resentment and concern expressed by Somalia because Somaliland is not an independent country, even though it claims it is. Um, And Somalia is claiming control over critical infrastructure. So um, this story has been in the papers for the last couple of days and it's in the papers again today. Just tell us a little bit more about each, you know, about how, how different papers are taking this. 
Yes, I think um, the Somali papers are stressing that the um, Somali president has signed a law that would be nullifying um, the deal and uh, stressing that it is illegal. Um, the Ethiopian papers are reporting it more as a matter of fact, saying that uh, these meetings have taken place. They're very much reporting um, Prime Minister Abiy's point of view that Ethiopia uh, needs a la- uh, sea access and uh, that this is a very strategic win for Ethiopia if it can make it work. Um, so that's kind of, we are seeing different representations of this story in the different papers. Uh, let's move on to uh, the Ghanaian presidential election. Uh, we've just talked about the Taiwanese elections and, and, and Ghana joins the throng of, I think it's 40% of the world's population go to the polls this year. Um, Ghana is going to be one of the countries joining that that great process um, and there's a new candidate who's, who's sort of en- who's entering the race tell us about well tell us about the situation anyway in Ghana and, and, and who's running for what Yes, there was quite a mystery in uh, Ghana because there were billboards showing a masked candidate um, running for a party that's called the New Force, but nobody really knew who had put up these billboards, who had funded these billboards. And uh, in the last couple of days, it has become clear that it's Nana Kwame Bidyako, a very um, wealthy property developer who is also referred to as Cheddar who has now announced that he's running as a presidential candidate. Um, and I think it's very interesting because he's seen as one of uh, yet another populist candidate who can probably mobilize um, very young people in Ghana. A lot of people are very frustrated with the performance of the government. The government had to be bailed out. Um, people are really uh, struggling under inflation and the rising cost of living. Um, so it looks like Mr. Bediako can mobilize uh, a lot of young Ghanaians who uh, want to see some kind of change. And people are comparing it to other populist candidates like Boris Johnson, Donald Trump. And I think we need to see how um, how the election pans out in Ghana. It's an interesting thing because Ghana is joining the, the, the African countries. I think the, the article in Semaphore, which you, you want to talk to us about today, is, is, highlights the fact that in Nigeria and, and, and Senegal, young people have been galvanised by dynamic populist uh, estab- parties that have shaken the political establishment and, and have and have moved things. And you talked about Mr. Bediaka. I mean, do you think he is one of those candidates who will enact real change? I mean, I think that's that remains to be seen. I think we even have to see if he's able to run, if he's able to run a proper campaign and put a team together. But as you said, in the neighboring countries, Senegal and Nigeria, but especially in Senegal, um, there is there are very young opposition figures with very little um, political experience or links the political establishment who appear and who have been able to basically um, galvanize protests, make people come out on the streets. And we've seen sort of a lot of unrest in Senegal in a way that we haven't in a long, long time. Um, and I think we have to see what kind of campaign Mr. Bediako is going to run, whether he's going to kind of bet on protests or whether he's going to basically just try to mobilize as many young people as possible. Because unlike in other countries in Europe or in the United States, young people on this continent can make a decision. Let's move to a great story that's um, coming out of um, Nigeria. The president um, says it's going to cut the number of people he sends out on foreign trips because apparently there were 1,400 delegates who went to the climate change conference COP28. 
Yes, exactly. 1,400 delegates for COP28. There was a lot of backlash in the Nigerian press after he came back, especially because he didn't even, he was criticized for not making uh, a speech, for not delivering a speech, for not talking about the importance of tackling this issue for Nigerians. So he has now announced that uh, in in the future, his entourage on foreign trips will be limited to 20 people. Um, And this is after two months of uh, constant press coverage and criticism in the in the Nigerian papers and in the in on social media. So who do you think these 20 lucky people will be because one would imagine if you're trying to sort of trim the entourage down from 1400 to 20 there's, there's going to be quite a lot of fighting or indeed you'll you'll find yourself thinking well actually I'm not part of the presidential entourage but I can invent a reason to go. Yes. I mean, the question really is, who were these 1,400 people and what were they doing? Uh, were they even in Dubai or were they just kind of shopping? Because these are these accusations that have been made that people were traveling with their families uh, to go on a shopping trip to Dubai. So I think we'll we'll have to see. I think 20 sounds kind of fairly reasonable. Um, and I think we have to see if that actually if that actually happens or if it's just an announcement. Indeed. One wonders, um, you know, if you're saying that you're going to trim your entourage, I wonder how effective that will be. Um, finally, let's head to uh, South Africa to uh, hear about um, a very famous photographer who who, who um, documented um, apartheid um, and and who's who's died. Yes, Peter Magubane, who has been called by the president himself one of the most fearless journalists. South Africa has produced, died at 91 years. The funeral was yesterday. It was attended by the uh, South African political elite. Um, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, the president, was there and delivered a eulogy. Um, and I think it is it's very moving to see the sort of the coverage. The inter- all of the South African papers and South African broadcasters were covering it. He spent 586 days in solitary confinement, and he is um, he's credited with some of the most poignant work around documenting the struggles of everyday black South Africans under apartheid. He worked during the 1976 Soweto uprising, and um, there's a very moving pictures um, in the papers today. Um, he also survived being shot at 17 times below the waist at a funeral of a student activist in 1985, and he continued to take pictures even after um, the end of apartheid in South Africa. Davina Cotter, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. The time here in London is 7.30am. A quick look now at what else uh, we're looking at today. Here are the headlines. The former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, has dropped out of the US presidential race. The Republican, who's a critic of Donald Trump, has trailed since the outset of his campaign. Ecuador's president says his country is at war with gangs who are holding more than 130 prison guards hostage. Daniel Noboa said 22 gangs are now classified as terrorist organisations. A United Nations helicopter carrying two Somali men and several foreigners has been captured after making an emergency landing in an area of Somalia controlled by the extremist group Al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab, linked to Al-Qaeda, has been waging an insurgency against the Somali government since 2006. Finland will extend the closure of its border with Russia, having closed it late last year to stop the growing number of asylum seekers from entering the country. Helsinki has accused Moscow of orchestrating an inflow of people. And an Austro-German heiress will invite 50 strangers to tell her what she should do with the fortune she's inherited. Maria Engelhorn is a descendant of Friedrich Engelhorn, the founder of the German chemical and pharmaceutical company BASF. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. 
happened in Poland's presidential palace on Tuesday night. Two Polish MPs had taken refuge there after being convicted for abuse of power. When President Andrzej Duda, who'd granted the men a pardon earlier, left the building for a meeting, the police swooped in and arrested them. Mateusz Mazzini is a writer at Gazeta Wyborska and a lecturer in journalism at Collegium Civitas in Warsaw. Good morning, Mateusz. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, Just to outline what happened and who are these two men and what were they doing in the palace? So the two men in question here are former Home Affairs Minister Mariusz Kamiński and his deputy uh, Maciej Wąsik, who were uh, in charge of the Home Ministry and uh, were overseeing secret services during the eight years of the previous uh, Polish government and populist nationalist law and justice. They were convicted for abuse of power relating to a corruption case that dates back all the way to 2007 when Uh, Law and Justice was um, creating the government for the first time in history. They were convicted uh, for using or encouraging anti-corruption agents to use entrapment. But uh, Andrzej Duda, the current uh, Polish president, also backed by Law and Justice, uh, pardoned them in 2015 with this little legal, little but important legal caveat that he pardoned them before the ruling of the court became validated. So for many legal experts, uh, that pardon was actually null and void because at least in theory, one cannot pardon someone that hasn't been entirely uh, convicted yet. Uh, But with the new government, the case has been reopened. And even though both politicians have been re-elected as MPs in the recent election in October, uh, as such, uh, because they were deemed Uh, convicts, um, their immunity stemming from the fact that they were members of parliament were no longer, uh, was no longer applicable. So their mandates and entry badges to the uh, building of the parliament were terminated. Uh, They were um, arrested by the police on the premises of the presidential palace on Tuesday evening. And right now they're being detained in a temporary detention centre in Warsaw. And indeed, one of them, Mariusz Kaminski, has said that he's now going on a hunger strike because he believes that he is a political prisoner. Uh, He isn't alone in that conviction, to be fair, because that's the narrative created around the whole case by most of the uh, former uh, and present law and justice politicians. The former uh, Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki um, issued a video statement last night on his social media channels, both in Polish and in English, uh, calling for the international community and international uh, observers to intervene in the case because uh, Kamiński and Wolsik are for him the very first political prisoners in Poland since uh, uh, the overthrow of communism in 19. Uh, 89. In fact, Kaminski is right now on hunger strike. Uh, Wąsik isn't, as far as we know, um, at least so far. Uh, There are protests, uh, first initially outside the presidential palace after um, they moved outside the uh, temporary detention center. Uh, There are there's money being collected for legal expenses, I believe, for both men and to support the families. And uh, later today, Uh, The supporters of the former government are uh, expected to march through the city centre of Warsaw uh, on a demonstration of support to both Kaminski and Wojciech and to uh, law and justice as such. And this, Mateusz, is an astonishing piece of political theatre, isn't it? Because you see on the one side 
um, people saying this is a sign that the rule of law is now working, that you cannot escape um, justice by using the technicalities of, of law. And in fact, that you know, the president is effectively sheltering convicting convicted criminals in the presidential palace. But as you say, there is still this enormous amount of um, support, though, for the, for the PIS, isn't there? I think it's short-sighted to um, see that as political theater primarily because what it is actually is a textbook example of two legal parallel realities that exist in Poland after eight years of the populist rule of uh, law and justice, which is then again, textbook example of how difficult it is to restore uh, the rule of law because uh, one cannot forget that after all, law and justice was the party that won the October election with over 30% of the vote. It still remains the single most popular and most widely supported political formation uh, in the country with millions of people who believe that they are on the right side uh, of history. And that's one of the many cases that the current government of, of Donald Tusk, the former European Commission, uh, European Council uh, president, uh, is facing right now because a number, a significant number of um administration offices and institutions is packed with law and justice loyalists who will not give up their position, their privileges, also their financial uh, benefits uh, any easily. So um, this is going to probably repeat itself. We saw that already with uh, the so far partially successful uh, attempt to take over the state broadcaster in December, which was also um, turning into sort of legal slash political theater. And I believe that there is a number of other institutions in which the same modality will be um, will be emerging because, uh, as I said, law and justice believes that this is the their interpretation of the legal uh, framework is the right one, uh, whilst the current government uh, tries to restore the legal reality from before 2015, uh, before law and justice started to pack the courts, especially the most significant ones, the Constitutional Court and the Supreme Court. What tone, however, does this set for the next few years, given the fact that you talked about the, the changes at the television station? You, we're talking about two uh, politicians who, who are currently uh, in jail. Uh, there is obviously that desire by the government of Donald Tusk to, to restore um, the rule of law, to restore democracy, to restore freedom of spe speech. But there is that problem, isn't it, about how you go about doing it. And if you do it in a, in a, in a heavy-handed way, it might not actually be a, achieve anything positive. It might, in fact, just rile the Law and Justice Party and their supporters. So one of the biggest worries that Poland's facing right now, I think, is increased political polarization because it's very easy to turn yourself into a martyr when you're being taken away from your public office in handcuffs and you declare yourself a political prisoner and you have the president on your side who promises, as Andrzej Duda did already, to go on an international tour and ask other heads of states to recognize Kaminski and Wojcik as political prisoners, which is a very heavy uh, label, especially in the international uh, community. And I think... It's fundamentally important right now to observe the dynamics of the lack of cooperation, not a cooperation between both Duda and Tusk and the Polish government and the opposition, because right after the October election, there was a wave of optimism all across Europe that because of the fact that Tusk managed as the first politician in uh, on the continent to defeat a populist incumbent, that now um, maybe the turn towards the far right or populist right in Europe is not uh, unstoppable, is not irreversible. Uh, and I think that given the 
the spectacle over the public broadcaster, given the troubles with putting the scandal over Kaminsky and Wojcik to an end, that shows beyond any shred of doubt that Tusk and his government will neither have the, the, the energy, nor the time, nor the resources to lead anyhow a, a European-wide charge of liberals against the populist incumbent, because they would be, be very, very occupied with um, problems stemming from the situation in the country. Matej Mazzini, thank you so much for joining us on the line. You're listening to Monocle Radio. in Paris, which is where we head next, because let's get a quick update on the countdown to this summer's Paris Olympics. Florence Biedemann is a political analyst and former AFP news editor. She joins me on the line now from uh, the French capital. A very good morning to you, Florence. How's Paris looking today? Morning, Emma. Uh, Very, very cold. I think this heat and cold wave in Europe has Really, we're in the middle of this, so yeah, well, freezing. Well, I am hoping that you're you're warm enough to talk to us for the next few minutes, and that, that the country's warm enough to to host the Olympics later on this year. I mean, the the headline that came out of Paris in the last couple of days is that eighty four percent of the buildings are ready. I'm not entirely sure what that means. Well, that means we're ready. I mean, basically, <laughs> no. That means uh, actually most of the infrastructures were already existing, you know. So it was not quite such a, 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 a big challenge. It is always a challenge, sure, but uh, uh, they didn't start from scratch. So it's not a surprise that uh, they are in time, you know. Again, uh, apart from a, a big swimming pool, I think most of the infrastructures uh, it's either like old ones that have been renovated, refurbished, or transformed, adapted. Um, they also built uh, an Olympic village, but uh, apart from that, let's say uh, they, they they could rely on uh, on what was still there. So it, uh, it was not the worry of these games. Uh, there are other concerns, but uh, on the building infrastructures, yes, they, they definitely think they would be in time. And to have everything in place at least what six months before things start. I mean, you, that is positively unheard of. But this this was the thing that, that almost won it for Paris, wasn't it? They said, we're not going to have wholesale restructuring. We're going to adapt what we get. Does that make um, Parisians more amenable to what's about to happen to their city? Well, they are a bit worried and there are good reasons for that. Like uh, the first question is the transport question. You know, the transport minister even asked Parisians to go on holiday during the games, you know, uh, because uh, they know it would be a bit difficult, you know, to to circulate inside Paris. And if uh, the transport network is already very busy and sometimes overcrowded. So if you have the same amount of Parisian uh, taking the transport at the same time as the some uh, 800,000 uh, people they expect every day for the events, then uh, this will be very problematic. So you know already as a Parisian that uh, you should rather go away uh, than take part in the games. Uh, the second thing that really didn't uh, uh, please the people is the fact that the metro ticket is going to be doubled. It's also linked to these transport questions. Uh, and um, there are, again, some worries about the security because the opening ceremony would be in open air on the Seine 
And this is kind of a nightmare, you know, for for the organizers and uh, for the police and security forces. Indeed, I mean, we've been we've been seeing the the most astonishing pictures coming out of Paris in the last couple of days. It's not often that you see an open top bus full of police officers um, parading through the centre of the French capital. I mean, what were they angry about? It, it. I mean, they clearly have to do an awful lot of the heavy lifting in July. Uh, definitely, you know, they will be fully mobilized. They were told they couldn't take holidays uh, during the games, of course. Uh, there is, as I said, these security concerns uh, because you will have to secure, you know, uh, the whole uh, part of the scene that will be used for, for the events. You know, it will be on boards. It looks grand and splendid, uh, but uh, it, it is really uh, uh, very difficult. So uh, the police, yes, demonstrated. Uh, I wouldn't say it was a protest, but somehow... They are asking questions, will we have bonuses, uh, how will it go, uh, what uh, what will we have to do. It, it's still uh, not completely clear. But I would say the same is valid also for the transport network. You know, all the people working in the transports are already negotiating like kind of bonus because uh, they know they, they, they will really be uh, uh, very much... Uh, over busy, if I may say, during uh, all this uh, period. Finally, just a, a, a little sort of on a side note, we have um, uh, the new Prime Minister, Gabriel Attal, um, trying to pull together a cabinet at the moment. What is the general reception to his arrival as, as you know, the youngest Prime Minister to serve in France? Well, I mean, it's, <laughs> I would say on th- th- there is a certain amount of... Uh, you know, scepticism, maybe on one side, people saying he's very young, will he be strong enough? Because there are many um, heavyweights in this government, uh, the Home Affairs Minister or the Economy Minister, will he be able, you know, to, to make this government function? Uh, but on the other side, he is one uh, the most popular uh, Macron minister, uh, and he is more or less compatible with the right, I mean, the conservative right, uh, and also he's coming from the left, so everybody's kind of hoping uh, it will work. I mean, he, he arrives with, let's say, uh, people seem to have welcomed his uh, arrival, like, okay, let's wait and see, but if someone is in a good position to try something, he could be the one. Florence Biedemann on the line from Paris. Thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems, and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. a.m. here in London. Let's talk business now. Andrew Walker is journalist and former economics correspondent for the BBC World Service. I'm delighted to say he's crossed over the road and come in to join us. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Delighted to be here. How's your New Year shaping up? Oh, all right. Thank you. Um, Pretty cold here too. It's absolutely perishing, but we're nice and warm in this cosy studio. So so we can look from 
our comf- our position of comfort um, to to the eurozone. Yeah, which pretty chilly to, outlook there. Yeah, yeah, not so great there. So just explain to us what does Europe have in store in terms of economics for, for this year. Well, what we've had is the vice president of the European Central Bank, um, Luis de Guindos, giving a speech in which he kind of acknowledged, well, he did acknowledge that the eurozone probably fell into recession in the second half of um, last year. There was, the term is usually defined in terms of, in terms of uh, two consecutive quarters of declining output. Well, the third quarter of last year, we already know there was a small decline. And he said that the figures he's been seeing suggest it's probably going to be true for the final quarter of last year as well. Um, and the outlook is is pretty, frankly, pretty sluggish. The good news that he was talking about, I suppose, is that um, um, is that the, the back of the inflation problem seems to be broken, um, although it did pick up a little bit towards the end of last year. That may have been a, um, a result of what's sometimes called base effects from earlier price declines dropping out of the comparison. But the, the Certainly, he's taking the view that um, the progress on dealing with the inflation problem that we had in the wake of the pandemic and the um, and the energy price shock that came from um, the invasion of Ukraine, that seems to be broken, but a persistent sluggish outlook. And a lot of that has got to do, I think, with Germany. Um, Germany has been particularly exposed to that energy price problem, um, and we've seen... T- several quarters in Germany of declining, declining economic activity. I never thought I'd ever hear that be said, that Germany would be the country that brings the European, the Eurozone well, into have, recession. There have been times in the past when Germany's been called the, the sick man of Europe. Um, not all that long ago. Well, certainly for somebody my age, it doesn't seem all that long ago. I mean, there was um, around the turn of the century, Germany had a lot of problems, um, partly some structural problems, which they made reforms to deal with in the aftermath of unification, um, that did have people thinking that um, Germany was holding the whole Eurozone back. And now Germany is more exposed to the kind of sluggish performance of global manufacturing with supply chain disruptions after the pandemic. If you look at countries like France and Spain, they've actually, they're very much more service-driven than Germany, and they haven't been affected in quite the same way. But nonetheless, just pure arithmetic means if Germany's having a bad time, it does mean that the Eurozone figures are going to look pretty grim. And also we're seeing changes. I think it's a year. I was thinking when I was in Germany, I think it's in Baden-Baden in February last year and there was a train strike. And yeah, it and just one. absolutely knocked every, it knocked me sideways when I stood there and there were no, no trains, there were no buses, there was, there was nothing for the, for the day. And I suddenly thought, hang on a minute, Germany is now falling into line with every other disgruntled European country. And it's happening again. Yes, indeed. So the economy going pretty slowly and frankly so are people's travel plans. Um, we're in the middle of a three-day strike by drivers at Deutsche Bahn. Um, they want to have sh- more pay and shorter and a shorter working week and the company's not agreeing to that. Um, the, the strike started in the early hours of um, Wednesday, um, slightly before that for freight traffic and it's due to end at the, um, in, in the evening on Friday. Um, this also coincides with some disruption to road transport as a result of farmers' protests in Germany who um, who are complaining about the German government's decision to withdraw some transport subsidies, so um, uh, tax reliefs on, on diesel fuel and and on, on, on road taxes. So, you know, 
getting around Germany is a lot harder than it normally is. There's a much bigger issue as well because you talked a moment ago about manufacturing mm-hmm. and that when you know when you are in Europe you see the the you know the transport trains many of them are Deutsche Bahn containing mm-hmm goods for the rest of the the European Union. The fact that everybody's on strike, that has a tremendous knock-on effect, doesn't it? Uh, yes, although bear in mind that much of what you see, the Deutsche Bahn branded stuff you see outside Germany is not going to be directly affected by this strike. But certainly Deutsche Bahn is an absolutely central part of, um, of the European um, railway infrastructure. Where else do you want to take us today in the economic news? How about the United States? Um, There's another German aspect to this, I have to say, because um, the Department of Justice there has announced an agreement with the German-based international um, software, enterprise software firm SAP, for a $220 million fine, or partly fine and other charges, over over some corruption um, issues it's been investigating, um, particularly, although not only, in South Africa and Indonesia. And the, the statement from um, from the Department of Justice uh, indicates that, um, that, the, that that there have been I mean, things like um, South African officials being taken to New York and wined and dined at great expense, bribery um, being offered in order to gain contracts in in those two countries and um, the Securities and Exchange Commission saying in addition a number of other um, African countries as well. Um, The company itself, SAP, has welcomed the settlement. I mean, $220 million is a lot of money, but given that it made an operating profit of more than $7 billion in 2022, it'll survive. Um, um, And the Department of Justice says it has cooperated with the investigation. And SAP um, says it has um, ended its relationship with the people involved. That presumably means they've fired them. Andrew Walker, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. You're listening to Monocle Radio. This is The Globalist. Let's head to Florence now, where it's Pitti Warmo, the week of men's fashion trade shows. Natalie Theodosi is Monocle's fashion editor, and she joins us on the line from central Florence. Uh, a very good morning to you, Natalie. How is Florence looking? Good morning, Emma. Florence is beautiful, as always. Very crisp, cold, but uh, it's great to be here, as always. And obviously, Pitti Warmo is an amazing week. What's everyone wearing? You know, everyone is layered up because it is quite cold. So you see a lot of really beautiful tailored clothes. And what's interesting, everyone is in their beanies or berets and big hats. Uh, a lot of headgear this season. <laughs> Excellent. And is there, and are shoes back? Because there's always a sort of an idea that everyone levels up just a little bit when it comes to Pity Warmer. The, the trainers disappear and there are some very, very smart souls. Exactly. I think you still see some of the editors and and fashion stylists pairing their suits with Salomon sneakers or those very trendy um, sportier shoes. But I think we slowly, slowly we are moving past that that trend and seeing more loafers and and smarter shoes, especially um, around the holes of the fair. Great for style, bad for the ankles. Right. Let's talk about some shows at Pitti Uomo. Tell us about Luca Magliano. So Luca Maliano was my first show of uh, of the week and it happened last night in this big stadium. He's a designer from Bologna who won the Karl Lagerfeld Prize last year. That's part of the LVMH uh, Prize. And um, 
is really has a lot of support by the industry. And, and he really did, didn't disappoint. His show was beautiful, really emotional. And I think what was interesting was that he does have that edge that you would associate with a young designer. But he also spoke about embracing his heritage and Italy's sartorial traditions. And he worked with more established brands like Borsalino and Keaton and really showed beautiful, immaculate tailoring. There was a contemporary twist to it, but you could see that he's also paying attention to craft and to construction of the garments, which is not something that the younger designers are always known for. So it's, it's a really interesting conversation between um, new and uh, more established designers that's happening all here. It's nice to see that that sort of commitment to um, uh you know, coming back to Pitti Uomo, sort of celebrating the classics, but very much on, on your own very modern terms. Absolutely. And I think that's what PT does really well. It's, it's a commercial fair. So you do see those established names from Italy and across the world, season after season, meeting buyers, writing orders. But there's also a commitment to supporting younger designers, bringing them to Florence to to meet the brands that are showing here. They give them access to some incredible venues around the city to do uh, their shows. So it's it's quite interesting. We have um, a London designer, Stephen Stokey Daly, who is following on this on the footsteps of many other Londoners who have been coming to Florence, from Jonathan Anderson to Martin Rose, and he'll be showing at uh, Via Santo Spirito. So I think that will be also an exciting moment that will close the um, the the event uh, we mentioned a moment ago uh, the issue of shoes and the fact that the you know the sm- the smarter loafer is is back um but the luxury end or the high end of, of footwear is still engaging in collaborations isn't it what's the latest one in in florence I think you're right Emma collaborations are so big um all around the fair I think in the past they were happening more around the streetwear market and it was about creating momentary buzz and there was always a sneaker involved. I think now uh, we see them happening across the board. Uh, like we mentioned before, Maliano worked with Borsalino to make hats and with Keaton to perfect his tailoring techniques. Um, uh, Keaton's sister brand, KTN, also presented a capsule with an artist, uh, again, updating their take on tailoring. And uh, we're, we're just seeing them all around. And what, what's interesting is that now I think designers are more focused on, on finding people they can share skills with. Um, earlier in the um, yesterday as well, we saw Todd's pair with Lamborghini to present a sportier um, version of their signature loafers. So a lot going on and a, and a lot of interesting uh, marriages. Um, just tell us a little bit more about, you know, we, we talked about you know, how people are wrapping up, uh, but are people investing this year? People are investing, but with caution this time. Uh, speaking to a lot of the wholesale agents that are selling the collections around the fair, um, what seems to be um, the takeaway is that um, they're gearing up for a slightly more difficult year for 24 and 25 because of the bigger macroeconomic factors. But uh, there's still investment. All the American and Asian buyers are in PT. And what, what has been the biggest change from what they're saying is that 
there's a little bit more caution in what they're buying and in really thinking about what the customer's needs are. I think in the past, um, fashion used to tend to dictate what's in, what's out, what the trends are. But now there's a little bit more openness to really understand what the customer wants, to improve the service and to really build relationships with them. Natalie Theodosi in Florence, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Vincent McAvinney, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Monica Lillis. Our researcher was Naomi Ekwe and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. Hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. 